Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. This episode features founder partner of Britain Thinks, Deborah Mattinson. And this is one of the most fascinating discussions I have ever had. Deborah is basically an oracle for everything that is going on with public opinion at the moment. And building on the the fascinating uh, Mood of the Nation research, which is available for free to read on the Britain Thinks website, as well as a rich resource of so much other previous research they've done. Which, if you're interested in this sort of thing, and if you listen to this podcast, I'm guessing you are, go on there and just enjoy it. It's incredible, the insights that are available on there, and the knowledge you will glean about uh, public opinion and and attitudes towards all sorts of things. Um, And, of course, this is all in the context of Brexit and uh, the leadership of the two major parties and everything else. It's just... It's so rare you can talk to somebody who gives you such clear answers about what people think and about the things that are happening in our lives, the, the undercurrents of British society. And um, I, I, we barely scratched the surface, really. There's so many other things. You're basically talking to someone who can tell you exactly what the country thinks. And, I mean, that is rare and and thrilling. Um, so I can't thank Deborah enough for for. for coming in and sharing with us her, her expertise and the great story of her life of working for the Labour Party. And I won't tread on that because she tells us about uh, her career uh, prior to setting up Britain Thinks. And of course, we talk about what uh, Britain Thinks may do next, which is also very exciting. Uh, Deborah is author of a fantastic book called Talking to a Brick Wall. Uh, we, we touch on it slightly, um, but it's still available to buy. And there is a link in the show notes to this uh, on the device that you're um, listening to this on, where you, you can buy that book should you wish. So, um, oh yes, and of course, I'm in the Edinburgh Festival in a few weeks uh, with my brand new show, Brexit Pursued by a Bear. Yes, I'm running out of Brexit puns, but you can get tickets for that show uh, through the Ed Fringe website, edfringe.com, and just search for for my name. I'm doing two political parties up there, one of which uh, the guest will be Nicola Sturgeon, uh, the other guest I'll be announcing very, very soon. So lots going on, but for now I will leave you in the wonderful hands of Deborah Mattinson. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Deborah, you're the second pollster that I've had on here. We had Lord Cooper on yeah. uh, a few months ago, yeah. particularly talking about his role in the referendum campaign and, and polling more widely. Yes. Um, and like him, you share a, 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 an illustrious background in working in politics. You were Gordon Brown's pollster for many I years. I was. So before we come on to the work of Britain Thinks, 
Just in terms of being Gordon Brown's pollster, was that purely during the time that he was Prime Minister or, or were you working with him when he was Chancellor? So I worked, yeah, no, I, I worked with Labour for long before. I worked for Labour in the dark years before 1997. The first election campaign that I worked on was 87. Oh, my God. So I, I'd, I'd been working in advertising yeah. and I'd offered my services to my local MP, Alf Dubs. Oh, wow. Uh, and he then, who's great. Yes. Uh, this was in Battersea. And he then said, oh, there's this group of people who are advising the party on its communications. And he knew I worked in advertising and suggested that I went along, which I did. Uh, and it was full of people who are like the age I am now. I was then a lot younger. And I figured that I couldn't sit and offer the kind of eminence grease that they were offering. I was also the only woman in the room, which became a very familiar story. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I thought, I can do stuff, though, actually. I can get things done. Because they just all talked, but I could say, hey, well, let me take that and turn it into a leaflet. or let me." And, and I, I accessed the team, the creative team in the ad agency I was, I was working for and started just doing things. And the Labour Party had just hired a new comms director, <laughs> bright young thing called Peter Mandelson. Uh, another person who was on this group was Philip Gould. Wow. And Peter took Philip and I out for dinner one evening and said, look, we've got an election coming and I need you guys around all the time. And so uh, I gave up my job. <laughs> and was that... So in terms of so moving... So this is 86. So in terms of moving from the red flag to the rose... Yes. Was that something you were... Yes. Uh, wow. Yes. Yep, 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 yep. I mean, one of the in terms of British politics, one of the most significant yep. rebrands, really, and that's pre-New yep. Labour. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, I talk in my book about the first focus groups that I went to. I, I didn't do them. Like Philip, I started off on a different side of, you know, of, of, of the kind of campaign team. Um, but sitting in on focus groups and hearing people talk about the Labour Party and... You know, it was just so obvious that there was so much work to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it took us 10 years. And here we are again. And here we are again. <laughs> and here we are again. It might take more than 10 years this time. Maybe, maybe. Um, it, so just in terms of coming from advertising into politics, I mean, people are suspicious of advertising now. Labour then, I imagine oh, gosh. certain even, elements would have been highly suspicious of you. So when I joined the Labour Party, which I did the day after the 83 election... Um, yes, thinking, oh dear. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, really. Um, when I joined, I went along to my local Labour Party, which was Battersea, and they asked me which union I was a member of. I mean, I worked in an ad agency. <laughs> I, didn't, I joined a union because you had to be a member of a union. And this rep came along from the union to sort of, you know, brief me yeah. and ask me if I needed any support. And I didn't feel I did. So that was fine. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was another world. It was another world. And in terms of, just in terms of going into advertising, what was it attracted you to advertising? Was it the kind of creative element of it? Yeah, I think so. It was it was fun. I was interested in communications. Um, I mean, I barely knew advertising existed. I'd actually initially started looking at things like PR. I'd done a law degree, actually, and I knew I didn't want to do law. That's the one main thing I'd learned <laughs> from doing a law degree, was that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, so, I, yeah, I kind of stumbled across advertising and then thought, hey, this is fun. It's quite nice. People get to wear their jeans to work. It's great. <laughs> was there any part of you that thought, before joining the Labour Party in 83, that thought, actually, this at, at some point this might be quite helpful if, if you're a politically aware person? I might at some point be able to use this for a political purpose? I mean, I would love to say there was a kind of master plan and it would, no, not at all. I mean, I just did the next thing that came along um, and, yeah, then I ended up... I mean, at some point, having worked in advertising for a while, I was beginning to feel 
I'm running out of steam with, you know, looking at brands of shampoo and (laughs) (laughs) I worked on Kentucky Fried Chicken at one point. Great. It was great, actually. It was really great. Um, But, but, you know, I felt that I I, I would like to do something kind of more meaty and interesting and worthwhile. And that's what what got you holding the label. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I started sort of like volunteering and... So you've got that. You've got Mandelson Gould. You're yes. in the room. Who else is around? Who was the guy? And I always Patricia Hewitt was another Pat really Hewitt, key figure. Of course, figure. yes, with Excalibur. Yeah, yeah. The only other woman in the room. So I'm mean, she and I are still good friends. So there was Tessa. Who who was? The, and I'm, oh. Well, Tessa wasn't even an MP at that point. I think she became. I think she won her seat in '87, or did she win in '83? Can't remember. But I didn't meet Tessa for some yes. years, actually. And then I'm just thinking, who and students of Labour history are going to damn me for, and I'm damning myself for not being able to recall his name. Brian, who's the guy who went to Australia? Oh, oh. Um, Brian Gould. Yes, of Brian Gould, of course. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was there. So, so he was running the campaign in '87. Wow. So our sort of eight eight o'clock in the morning strategy meetings were were run by him. Uh, and he was just amazing. So you were immediate into the heart of it then. So you were, I mean, a fascinating just, you know, one of the undercurrents from, from Labour then to now, particularly in the new Labour era, was Peter Mandelson's relationship with Gordon Brown. So you'd have seen it at the start when they were still mates. Yes. And then yes. seen it, you know, erode and then see it rebuild. When mates and then seeing them become mates again. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've been there yeah. for that a long, you know... Yeah. Yeah, and those differences then, I mean, boy, is that the, the vanity of small differences, yes. you know. I mean, you know, the, the dif- you know, I, I, I ended up working for Gordon, Philip ended up working for Tony, um, and we were sort of on opposite sides of the fence. When I look at the differences between us now, it's just extraordinary. So during that period then when you... And there were, I mean, yes, there were. I mean, particularly in retrospect, the differences are so small. But there were cultural differences, personality differences, as well as ideological, small, relatively small ideological differences. Did you ever fall into the kind of trap of tribalism in that period, do you think? In the sense of being... A brown brown knight. I mean, to be honest, I, I started working for Gordon. So I worked for Labour... Um, although, in fact, when I say I worked for Labour, I always did other things as well. And I think mm. that was quite important, actually. I always kind of kept one foot in the camp of the real world. <laughs> um, so I, after the 92 elections, set up the first company that I set up called Opinion Leader Research and ran that. And I carried on working with other clients and as well as working um, for, for Labour. Um, in the run-up to 97, I did... A lot of by then I was doing focus groups and doing yeah. qualitative research mainly. Um, I did a lot of the work that tested the pledges, for example, yes. went on the pledge card. Yeah. So uh, you fast know, track punishment they, for yeah, yeah. Uh, now, now here's here's our little test. Can uh, we oh, remember them all? No, don't ask me. I probably can't. Okay, so but, it was uh, class sizes under thirty. Was yes, it class sizes under thirty? Yes. Fast track punishment yeah. for persistent young yeah. offenders. Hospital waiting lists. Waiting lists. Uh, there was. And no income tax rise. Yes. And there must have been a crime one. Crime. Cut crime, yeah. yeah. Oh, there you and go. what was extraordinary was that, you know, OK, we're struggling to remember it some yeah, years yeah. on, but actually in that election campaign doing focus groups by week two, I would say to people, what, how different would it be? What would happen if Labour got in and people literally just could drop wow. them off? So the messages were cutting through. So it was through. so clear. It was so clear. Uh, it was just extraordinary. I've still got a little batch of them. 
Have you? 97 pledge cards, wow. yeah, in, in the, wow. I'd say the loft, in a cupboard somewhere. Yeah. I got yeah. a load from, um, when I worked on the Sedgefield by-election after Tony Blair left and Phil Wilson was the candidate, yeah. just in the back room at Trimden Labour Club, there was just all this, as every Labour club has. So just you just old, took it all for, yeah, next for your... <laughs> 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 yeah, next to theft. They let me have it. I mean, they've got so much stuff. I just took it a kind of little yeah. wodge of 97 pledge yeah. cards. Yeah. So they're still there. I mean, focus groups became a phrase that the public knew in that new Labour era. And it was used in an almost pejorative way, you know, that, that policy had been focus grouped in the sense that it gave the impression it wasn't coming from a place of conviction, that yeah. you would ask the public first and then develop policy. Yeah. I mean, is there any truth, do you think, that there was a negative side to it? in terms of, rather than coming from a place of conviction, Labour was just letting the public tell them what they wanted to hear and then putting I mean, that I have, back to the I have literally never worked with a politician who has said, go and do a focus group and find out what we ought to be saying. Yeah. Um, so, no, I don't think so. And, and I always regard, you know, this is a way, I've, I think it's an important part of democracy. This yes. is a way of having the voter in the room. Yeah. Uh, it really matters. It's really important. And I felt it was an incredibly important thing to do. And all politicians think that they're in touch with their electorate. All politicians think they know what voters want because, you know, they chat to their mates and they chat to the people that turn up to their constituencies. They chat to their local members. And actually, they have no idea um, how ordinary people's lives are. And so for those politicians, it's a way... It's a way of understanding what people think about you and what they say about you when you're not in the room as well. Do you think it would be a good idea for just constituency MPs to run them? And not run them themselves, but have them run in their constituency just to find yes, out? Yes, I do. Yeah. I mean, they have to be well run. And that, that there yeah. is a caveat there because they are, they're, they're small groups. And just like a poll, you know, it matters. They can, be, they can be twisted and affected. How you run it can make a difference to the outcome that you get. So they have to be well run. And crucially, the people that you get have to be people that are properly recruited into the mm. process and have to be, you have to be really confident that they're genuinely representative of the audience that you want to have reflected in the yes. discussion. So I think they do have to be well done. But yes, why not? I think it would be a really good thing to do. Uh, you, you mentioned something there that goes to the heart of so many of the issues at the moment, particularly with political broadcasting, which is how do you get... How do you rigorously find a, a, a fair balanced sample of, say, 100 British people? So when... You, know, you have leadership debates or whatever and people yeah. watch Question Time and go, well, this is just full of Corbyn supporters, yeah. rightly or wrongly. How hard is it, from you know, from your point of view, if the BBC were to come to you and say, look, we need a balanced audience of 100 people? My view was always that, well, some of them are going to be lying to, to yeah. get in. Or can you easily I mean, I, I, you know, that? I have done that work and Britain Thinks has done that kind of audience work a little bit for, for you know, for broadcast organisations. It's very tricky and it's mm. harder now. Uh, because you have to really check people's credentials very clearly. You have to look at their social media accounts. You have to wow. really know uh, what they're doing. And I think I think one of the keys is perhaps not to not to say to people, come in and you know look at you know come in and and, and be part of this uh, session with the new prime minister or whatever, because that's automatically going to attract people in who have a particular axe to grind or have a reason for wanting to be there. Yeah. So the best thing to do, I think, is to initially be a little bit oblique about what they're actually doing and, and get your people and screen them and be really clear that you've got a good representative bunch. That's a great idea. You have to do it that way because if you don't, you know, if you just ran an ad saying... Yeah, interest in politics, come along. And then yeah, actually yeah, every nutter in town would be <laughs> exactly, in there. Yeah. You know, so, and, and, and of course that's what happens. 
because there are some people who are very highly motivated. Most normal people don't think about politics yeah. very much. And in fact, if you there, there was a time when we were recruiting people into political focus groups where we stopped saying that it was to do with politics at all, partly because it meant that we were getting weird people who were very overly, people like you or me, people who were very interested <laughs> really in politics. Weird, yeah. Really weird. Um, and, and partly because some people would say, I'm not into politics. You know, mm. oh, I've got a friend who's, you know, and, and actually we wanted to know what they thought, despite the fact that they considered themselves to be not knowledgeable or into politics. And at what stage did you start doing that? Like in terms of how long ago? What, doing political focus groups? In terms of uh, trying to get people that weren't political and, and, and in terms of hiding the political element of it at the oh, start. Oh, I mean, quite early on, it became apparent that we had to do that um, and that, that, you know, if you wanted to get people who were genuinely a cross-section of ordinary voters, yeah. then, you know, kind of trumpeting that you were doing this for a political party or doing it, uh, you know, that it was going to be about... We, we would say, come along and we're going to talk about issues that affect your local area. Yes. Or something like that. And then and then they would come along. Women in particular were very resistant to coming along and talking about politics. And it, it, would that still be true now, do you think? I think it's less true now. Because, uh, you know, we're talking about some decades ago now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, back then... Literally, we've had recruiters going out trying to find people to come to focus groups and women would say, uh, you know, actually, if you want to talk about politics, you'd be better off talking to my husband. <laughs> so sad. I mean, it, you know, obviously this yes. represents a societal attitude at the time and hopefully that has uh, changed. When you say recruiters going out, are they literally the people we see in the street with clipboards? Sometimes, yes. I mean, sometimes there'll be people who are doing polling. Yeah. You know, numbers work. But, uh, but yes, some, that's how a lot of focus groups are recruited as well. And a company like mine will have a network of people all around the country. Uh, so almost wherever you want to do them, I can find somebody who who will be able to find people and are there, to fit the bill. Whenever you're putting a focus group together, as well as thinking about whether this person is a lever, remainer, left-wing, right-wing, you know, likely to vote, unlikely to vote, mm. depending on whatever research you're doing... Do you also have to have different personality types at different times? Like, do you think actually you meet someone and they're, they're going to be too dominant in the room and you think actually that's not going to work? Or do you think actually a dominant voice would be good to kind of provoke other people or is that not? Well, that's good? where the skill of the person who's moderating the focus group comes yeah. in. So, uh, I mean, you know, this can, sometimes it's trust, tested to within an inch of its life, I can tell you. But, yeah. but basically, you know, a good focus group moderator can uh, can iron those things out and will say, you know, actually, Matt, I think we've heard enough from you now. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got a very a clear life, sense yeah. of where you're at. <laughs> you know, if we can just let yeah. Daisy here come in or whatever. And that's and that's how, how it would work. Get a lot of emails saying that, actually. You've, you've really you've hit, upon, <laughs> hit upon something a lot of listeners a have said. A raw nerve. <laughs> but, but no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there are, there are lots of different devices that you can do that will nicely um, put you know, kind of shut people up, basically, and enable... And things you can do to enable quieter people to have the confidence to yes. put their view out. Like you get them to do little things, exercises in pairs, and then share it back. Or There are lots and lots of different things you can do. And would you ever deliberately seek out... So, for instance, shy is an interesting word, given the, the so-called shy Tory yes. phenomenon. Would you ever try and deliberately have a focus group of shy people to find out how you kind of make them less shy, or is that not... No, you might. I mean, actually, more often what we do, uh, we quite often recommend to clients doing work with a group that we call social influencers. So it's the opposite of what you're saying, where you have a whole 
room full of loudmouths. Oh my god! <laughs> a whole room full of people. It's the kind of person who, you know, in the playground, you think, I want to know what's going on with the new head. You know, who's the person to ask? Or okay. at the workplace, who's the person to find out? You know, we know who those people are in yes. our lives. They're relatively easy to recruit, and they're very useful people to to tap into sometimes. Okay, so sometimes there is a deliberate yeah, so choice. You might in terms you might of... go for a particular personality yeah. type, and and you certainly might go for particular voting patterns or other kinds of behaviour patterns, yeah. In terms of your antenna, and you must have such a... I just imagine that you know almost what everyone's thinking at every one point, but you must have such a a sharp antenna for where the public mood is because you've seen so many people talk about it across the UK, about every issue, and you're constantly collecting this data. Do you ever sit in a focus group and think, actually, I I think this isn't where the rest of the public are? or, or this is a kind of freak. This is an outlier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's why, you know, when you design a piece of work, you have to think carefully about how many sessions you're going to do, where you're going to do them, how you're going to run them. And, yeah, occasionally you will get, like you get a rogue poll, you will get, it's even more likely if you think about it because it's a small number of people, you might get a group of people who, for whatever reason, are atypical. And then, I suppose... And you have to know enough to be able to aim off and... Yeah. I mean, particularly with political work, because I've just done so much of it, I can read it quite quickly. Is it, Does this feel right or does it not feel right? And do you ever get a sense then, you know, you're obviously exposed to so much data, qualitative and quantitative, as well as everything else that you're taking in. Mm. Did you see any of the shocks coming over the past four or five years? Oh, I'd love to say <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, OK, I I saw Brexit coming. Oh, man. That was so I took to I I spoke at lots of things through that referendum campaign and I took to asking the audience, stick your hand up if you think that Remain is going to win. And everybody would put their hand up. And actually looking along the panel, even the people who were there representing the Leave campaign would have their hand up. Everybody thought. And I would say there is no evidence to support that view. And people say the polls were wrong. They actually weren't wrong. Some mm. polling was wrong, but yeah. the polls weren't wrong. If you look at the poll of polls, actually overall through the campaign, more polls predicted leave than remain. Yeah. And basically all the way through, pretty much once it got going, they were within the margin of error too close to yeah. call. It was it was entirely predictable what happened. And if you were out there doing focus groups and listening to people, it was really clear that it literally could go either way. And I suppose one of the things, uh, and I talked about this with, with Lord Cooper, was about likelihood to vote. So mm. some people were, were then adjusting the polling. So actually, once you factor in, you know, these people have never voted before. Yeah. And then actually, once you factor that in, Remain comes ahead, that people didn't see that. Yeah. This that, was energising yeah. people who'd never yeah. voted. And that's always the challenge is turnout. Is, yeah. it, you know, and it's a challenge if you're looking at a general election campaign as well and how you plan for that. And how you how you work that through? Yeah, of course. In terms of then this, I mean, the, the, you know, the the length of your career and 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 the, and the level at which you've you know uh, worked in the industry as one of the industry leaders for so long and worked closely with leading politicians. When you think about the societal changes that, that have mm. happened in your career and the changes in public opinion, what's your assessment of where we're at now? Is this just a kind of are we going through a series of peaks and troughs that that we see throughout history, or is are we living in something different now? I I have literally never known um, British people be as gloomy as they are now. 
Um, we've Britain thinks we've just done a piece of work called The Mood of the Nation, which is, is the second time we've done yeah, it. Yeah, I've got a lot of questions about that. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, they are very, 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 very gloomy. And there's a sort of inequality of pessimism as well. So certain sorts of people are even more gloomy than others. So young people are massively more gloomy than older people. Um, working class people are more gloomy than middle class people. People who live in cities are more gloomy. Um, it, you know, there's a, there, yeah. there are some really... And, and I think, you know, this is partly... Brexit has shone a light on this. Um, because I think the other thing that I haven't seen in my career is people having such a negative view of politicians as they do now. Now, you know, it has always been the case that people have... Um, have how can we put this nicely? Have, have, have doubted sometimes... Have, have doubted the motivations of politicians, yes. right? Bluntly, they probably thought they had their fingers in the till. Yes. That's always been the case. But what they think now is that they're looking at politicians with a fresh pair of eyes and seeing levels of incompetence that they, they find very, very scary. And is that just Brexit that's done that, or is that on the back of expenses, Iraq, you know, the other kind of fence posts in that relationship? I think it's Brexit that's done that. Yeah. And if I compare it with how the mood was after the expenses scandal, I think, I don't think people felt very differently. It confirmed what they thought they already knew, rather than um, change their minds. Whereas now, I think their minds are changed. And is it that the expenses confirmed what they thought about? Uh, corruption and that's a different analysis and and actually brexit is about competence and ability to do the job i, I wouldn't say that expenses was really about corruption it's about a, it, it was more what people felt they knew i mean obviously there are a small number of mps who who were corrupt and probably still are probably there probably still are a small number of mps mm. but i don't think most people thought that their politicians were actually corrupt it, it's a sort of just a low-level mistrust of their motivations yes that they're in it for the wrong reasons um, that they're not in it to make the world a better place, uh, but they are in it to feather their own nests in one way or another. And that was what was confirmed, I think, by the expenses scandal. What we're seeing now is a feeling that that they are out of control, that even when they want to do something, they have no idea how to make it happen. And is that shared by leavers and remainers? Yes, yes. Because when you look at the Brexit process, frankly, whichever side of that fence you sit, you're not happy. <laughs> yes, yes, very true. Just to just to come back to something you said about young people being gloomy. Are, are, historically, are, I always think of young people would be more optimistic. Yes. So is that something that's changed? Or actually, does polling say young people are always a bit more gloomy, but it's the extent of that that's changed now? Well, I, I haven't actually got trend data on this, so we haven't asked the question quite in that way. Um but I think it is a change, and I think it's partly because it partly comes back to uh, remain, leave. By the way, remainers are also more gloomy than leavers, actually. So everybody's fed up with the process. Nobody thinks it's working. But remainers definitely think whatever the outcome, ultimately, it's not going to be one that's good for them. And, of course, that correlates with being young. So younger people are more likely to be remainers. Yes. So you've, you mentioned uh, the Mood of the Nation report, which is fascinating yes. reading and, and available for free on your website. It's available for free. On, as is actually, just if you're interested in Brexit, our Brexit Diaries series is fantastically well, good and is also on the website. Your website is a, is a rich resource of fantastic... Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I, I put, one of my favourite pieces of work you ever did was after the 2015 election, the kind of um, snapshot of the British public... And I love the quotes that you got from the different 
you know, parts of the UK. And I, I, I never forget, I think it was, there was a really fun, I ended up doing a stand-up routine about a really funny thing that someone <laughs> oh, no. in, a, in a Scottish um, focus group had said, which was basically that... Um, I think I think in, the, in one of the Scottish focus groups, everyone had blamed Gordon Brown for something apart from them. Basically, there was a kind of there was a kind of a slight cognitive dissonance about why things. I can't remember the exact phrase. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm annoyed with myself that it's deserted me. But but, but the point really being the broader point is you, you put a lot of this stuff out there for free that people yeah. can access on your website, and it is f- it's a a, a a wide and deep river of information about um about the British public yes, and, and why they think yeah. certain things. So. Yeah. Just in terms of the Mood of the Nation 2019 thing, you, d- you ran four focus groups, two in London and two in Leicester. Yes. I kind of understand why you picked London. Yes. Uh, why Leicester? So actually, um, Leicester, because that part of the Midlands is uh, one of the most gloomy and negative bits of Britain. So we were quite oh, interested man. to sort of, uh, yeah, to, to, to sort of listen to people who were coming from a gloomier um, perspective and people who are coming from a more positive perspective in London. In fact, it turned out not quite to be like that. So there were some very interesting things in London that people feel gloomy about. I mean, I'm hearing things in focus groups now that I haven't heard people complain about since the 1990s. What right? like? Like, um, it, I mean, this is partly austerity driven, so cuts to schools, mm. hospitals, crime. Now, crime is extraordinary. And what we found with this survey was that one in five people think that they or a close family member may well be a victim of violent crime in the next year. Wow. And that rises to one in three in London. So I hadn't heard people talk about crime for a long time. Homelessness, again, was something that just sort of disappeared off the agenda. Um, You know, people weren't seeing it as, as a kind of blight on the public realm as they do now. Uh, as a scar, you know, on, on our streets. It's so visible yes. in every town and city in the UK, yeah. in every part, in every part of London now. Yeah. 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 And in, you know, wherever I go, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Nottingham, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible yeah. how visible yeah. it's been. But basically doing focus groups, you know, in, in the run-up towards the 97 election, which I mean, the, the years running up to that, I would hear this stuff again and again and again. And then a lot of it slipped away. And I'm hearing it again now. But the difference is this, that at that point when I was hearing it before, Labour's lead over the Tories was actually bigger than Labour's total poll score now. So wow. Labour's polling less than 20%. Yeah, 18%, yeah. I think, on the last yeah. of poll. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as someone who served the Labour Party for so long, how does that make you feel seeing the predicament Labour in now? Oh, it's desperate. It's desperate. And actually, I think it's unforgivable because... I mean, it begs so many questions. Would we even be in this position? I think everybody raises their game. If you have a decent opposition, then the government, you get a better government. That's the point of opposition. That's what you're there for. I mean, if Jeremy Corbyn said to you, Deborah, I hear you. You know, I heard you on the Political Party podcast. Please <laughs> come into the heart of my operation and, and help us out. Would you help him or I not? don't think so. No. no. And, and, and he might not he By might the way, not ask the question. funnily enough, I think he's not going to ask anyway, so we don't need to torment <laughs> ourselves too much, sort of gaming out that one. So it's fascinating just, just looking at the four focus groups you ran and, and the and the way that you broke it down. Yeah. So uh, the two you ran in Leicester, um, the first one was aged 50 to 75, yep. working class, voted leave and pessimistic. And the other one was aged 35 to 49, working class, voted remain and was pessimistic. And then the two in London was... Uh, 40 to 65, middle class, voted leave and optimistic. 
1834, middle class voted Remain an optimistic. So you've tried to sort of shuffle it. Yes, so we'd, we were trying to reflect can. what the polling was telling us about where the pockets of pessimism and optimism were with those geographical locations. I'd say it wasn't in the end that simple. But, you know, we weren't doing very many focus groups. We had to find a way of stretching it that kind of made sense to us. So that's what we did. And what other, I mean, obviously, we, it feels quite negative so far. What are the things that give people optimism in Britain at the moment? <laughs> well, what's quite interesting is actually people in their own lives feel more positive. So, you know, the negatives, the negativity is when you think about the nation. When you look at, you know, the country and, and yes. what lies ahead for the country is where people are they're most gloomy. Then when you think about your local area, I perk up a little bit. <laughs> I'm still quite gloomy. Yeah. And then when I think about my own life... You know, whilst obviously people are grappling with issues in their lives like they always have done, nonetheless, people do feel more positive. And I think another quite interesting finding from that work was that people kept saying to us, you know, in the end, we're British. And although there is a feeling <laughs> that, our, you know, that, that, uh, that we're a country in decline quite mm. severely, that British values are, are slipping um, and not what they were and so on. Nonetheless, people would say, we, you know, in the end, we'll get on with it. Whatever happens, we'll get on with it. Well, <laughs> there's a great, great quote that's in that deck, actually, that you've got there, that uh, where somebody said, you know, the thing is, when the French are upset, they go out and riot on the streets. But we're like, let's go to Tesco's and get some beers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we can all agree on that. Um, uh, just in terms of British values, do you get a sense that people agree on what British values are? Yeah, we in the poll, we took the definition of British values that came out of the focus groups. And what people talked about was, um, was fairness, uh, exemplified by something like the NHS, good manners, uh, tolerance. Uh, so they had a whole, a whole yeah. list of things that, uh, that, that they, they felt, and we used that definition in the poll. And they're things that Leavers and Remainers would both agree on. Yes. They would both identify. Yes. So yes. actually there is a set of British values that you yes. could probably write down. Yes, there is. Yes. Because sometimes it feels like quite a nebulous thing that yeah. people are, you know, some people's British values might not be the same as others, but actually it's fascinating that well, people across the big divide. Well, of course, these are quite broad as yes. well. So then when you actually, well, what does that actually mean? Then, you know, then the devil is in the detail. Yeah, bring a bit. back hanging and stuff. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> maybe not, but yes. Um, so, you know, there are, I mean, and, and the one thing people can agree on is is how divided we are as a nation at the moment, and they're really upset about that. And they're really, you know, they will, they want to see us brought together. I mean, that's the political challenge in a way. Well, it's good that people actively want that, I suppose. They actively want it. Want they that, really want, want it. Want that healing and want that unity. Just in terms of when you talk about, um, people being more optimistic about their own lives is it that they're optimistic in the sense that um, they're in loving relationships and yes. they love their children my family and yeah yeah might have a nice holiday and or yes whatever. yeah but that's distinct from perhaps their own futures in the sense of job security and things like well that. I think it does relate to that and I think that's one of the reasons if you know if we're to think about why it is that young people are more negative and pessimistic than older people they feel less of a sense of job security. Uh, they're more likely to, uh, you know, to, to be working on zero-hours contracts, mm. to, you know, to feel that they don't have a, a positive future ahead of them. Housing is an issue for them. They're more likely to be, you know, feeling that they can't afford to buy a home, that they'll never get to buy a home, they'll never get a foot on the housing ladder. There are lots of very specifics then that play out in people's lives and, and colour their view of the whole country. And when you look at this stuff, particularly this Move to the Nation report, with your political head-on, what does it tell you about what the policy solutions are to, to the nation's troubles? Brexit aside, it sounds like 
homelessness, the housing crime. I mean, these are all things that are kind of being discussed anyway, yeah. but it sounds like those things are the kind yeah. of the, and crime is the top. So, the, I mean, this is quite interesting. When you ask people in focus groups, why are you so fed up with politicians now? I think there are a number of things that come out. One is there is a sense that everybody is playing party politics rather than putting the national interest mm. at you know, at the heart of what they do. So that's one thing. Another is this sense of incompetence. So even if even if they mean well, they're, they're not somehow able to, to deliver. And then the third is, I suppose, a bucket that you could broadly call opportunity cost. So everybody is, is faffing around with Brexit. And then there are all these really important things that matter to me that aren't getting dealt with. And that's, you know, funding for schools and hospitals and homelessness and housing and, you know, you name it, crime. Um, and that's what starts to make people really angry. So the policy, I mean, that's quite clear, I think. Yes. How you achieve it is something else, and that's where leadership comes in. <laughs> in ter- just in terms of where the British public opinion is on the, the classic political issues, so things like tax and spend, do you get any sense that people are more likely or less likely now to say, I'm happy to have an increase in my personal level of taxation if it would improve the NHS? I think taking that particular example, um, I think yes, actually. Um, one of the things that I worked on for Gordon when he was Chancellor... Well, I was going to come to the National was, Insurance. Yeah, I mean, the most popular tax rise yeah. ever in the history of tax rises, <laughs> and there have been lots of them, and that was, um, you know, putting putting the funding, putting, putting NI up, yeah. specifically ring-fenced to fund the NHS. Now... It's easy to look back on that and think, well, that was a bit of a no-brainer, wasn't it? But at the time, after years of Tory government, frankly, in a lot of people's minds, the jury was out about whether the NHS was even worth saving, mm. whether it was so run down that it would be better to, to think again. So, so one thing we had to do was to persuade people that the NHS was worth saving. And then, you know, we, we embarked on this quite long programme about how to make the case for this tax rise, and it, it took a long time. But eventually we got there... And and it worked, and it was you know, and I think I think there are ways of, of of doing that, but it slightly depends how much trust you place in the person who is levying the tax on mm. you, and this was where so I did a piece of work. I think it's what you were referring to earlier, after the Ed Miliband election, yes, where you know it was really clear that that the principal reason why why Ed lost was because people didn't trust him to run the economy. Yeah, there was that. Also, the kind of, you know, the, the, the SNP message, the, the picture of him in Alex Salmon's pocket. Yes. I mean, yes. I, in retrospect, that seems to have played a part. At the time, I didn't necessarily think that that was going to cut through in the way that perhaps it did in certain areas. I mean, did you pick up that that was a big issue for voters, particularly in England? Yes. I, I actually think, though, the piece of work that we did, in hindsight, to kind of what went wrong piece of work, work definitely highlighted people's concerns about spend, spend, spend more than anything mm. else. But there was also a sense that they didn't know really who Labour was for, or at least with ordinary voters, whoever Labour was for, it wasn't for them. Yeah. We did what, One of the things we do a lot in focus groups is something we call a mood board. You put lots and lots of photographs and you say, you know, so, so which of these people would be people who, uh, who would benefit if there was a Tory government and a Labour government? And when we asked the question of a Tory government, these ordinary voters picked out people a little bit like them and said, I think they'd probably thrive. And when we asked about a Labour government, they really struggled. And in the end, they picked out the people who look really kind of like down and out and poor um, and needy. 
I remember that from the research that they said it's yep. not the Labour Party, it's the Benefits Party. Yeah. The people perceived yep. it wasn't even for the working class. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. It's a huge problem. Yep. I mean, Labour's obviously yep. got a whole load of different yeah. problems Which there. Which is a massive feeling of deja vu because, you know, when I first started working for Labour back in the day, that was exactly where we started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss just in terms of uh, uh, when you do these bits of research the, the bits that catch the headlines and they're always so funny is when people associate politicians with an animal yeah. or you know words you would associate with a politician yeah. now they well, obviously... the party brands that's my, my favorite is actually you know what would be the come dine with me celebrity meal for the labor party oh that's wow asked for years so so it used to be like a pie and a pint back yeah. in you know back in the kind of you know 80s yeah in the ed miliband era it morphed into something slightly different so this wasn't a sausage roll it was sausage en croute <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't like an ordinary pint oh. it was it was craft ale you know from a microbrewery in primrose hill wow similar and then with jeremy it's gone like one step further and you know the the the, the meal for labor now is quinoa and what would and those... i discovered nobody knows how to spell it including me. on a quinoa or what yeah, is exactly, the way i was trying to remember exactly so with um, so what would they say for the other parties then? What would, what would the Tory move? Well, be? that's what's quite interesting because the, the the party brand of the Tories has really hardly changed at all. It's the poshest thing you Champagne, can think caviar. of. Champagne, caviar. Yeah, whatever is the poshest thing you can think of. <laughs> Quail. Quail. And what about the Lib Dems? Tofu and uh, is it stuff like that? Well, you know, I, I haven't done this for the Lib Dems for quite a long time because, you know, they haven't really been players. They wouldn't have had enough of an image. Oh, God. I know. But I think we might have to start <laughs> doing that now. An empty now plate, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, I think once, uh, once they have... I mean, actually, one of the things we're planning to do this summer is a piece... Uh, which is a, a tracking piece. I've done it a, a number of times looking at what leadership means. So, you know, when we have a new Tory leader, when we have a new Lib Dem leader and and we have Jeremy, yeah. um, I'm going to look at what kind of leadership they offer and what people think Great. of them. Because with, with the meal question, with the animal question, are, are they things that you think, actually, this is a really good way to get this research in the public realm because, you know, papers will pick up on that. And does it just serve that purpose? Or is, actually, is there, is there a wider purpose to that? It, it, it literally isn't done for that reason. But I mean, it's, it's fine if that happens. <laughs> but the reason why we do it is these are called projective techniques. And you, you were saying earlier about, you know, how you get people to talk and how. You, and if you have people who aren't very interested in politics and often haven't articulated their thoughts very clearly, 
it can be quite hard and what they'll do is give you a very rational answer but actually a lot of this is really emotional heartfelt stuff mm. and so the reason for doing the animal piece or the or the you know the food or the drink or whatever the car i mean theresa may was a reliant robin oh you know, no wheeler you were just amazed that she kept going <laughs> So it really works as an it analogy. It so then. works, and that, and the reason why you do that is if you asked people just to give their rational thoughts on Theresa May, they'd come up with something that wasn't true. Yes, it's a way of getting to a truth, and and helping people to articulate what they actually feel when they're often not used to talking about it. So, what car do people say Corbyn is? I haven't asked a car of Corbyn for quite a long time, and I suspect it will have changed. That will be one of the projects over this summer, yeah. will be to really look at the leaders and, and, and how they're seen. Um, but basically, you know, the voters has been on a bit of a journey with him. They, they, yeah, they started off whether they would have voted for him or not, kind of admiring him. Mm. And yet, and yet, as things have unfolded, they now... Actually, they judge him more harshly than they judge Theresa May. Seven out of ten say that he is putting party interests and his own career ahead of national interest on Brexit, for example. That that's been... And that's very... more than would say it for Theresa... Yeah, it was 58% for her. OK. That's fascinating, given that he's yeah. in opposition as well. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose, in a way, he wouldn't be a car... You, you, because he'd be... Maybe you know, he'd be a bike. He'd be a bike. He yeah, would. He'd yeah. be a bike. Yeah. Um, there's a great quote from one of your uh, focus group uh, members uh, in the uh, Leicester group that I've heard so many... T- when I think, And I grew up in Nottingham, so maybe it's this is something that only affects people in the East Midlands. But I hear this a lot when people talk about other countries' perception yeah. of the UK. And this, this person in the 50 to 70 group in Leicester says... I think we can't do it as a country. It's a world thing. We're not a polluting... Co- so they're talking about... Um, yes. Sorry, the environment. I yes, make that clear. yes, yes. The US, China and Brazil, they're just laughing at us. Now, and Because here heard... we are, this little country, and we're not... you know, yes. Whatever we do won't make a difference. And yet, and yet, at the same time, one of the things that we did with the Brexit diaries was to ask people to draw maps of the world and place Britain... In the world. That's on the website as well, and it's fascinating. I think it's the one before last, so probably March Brexit diaries. And, I mean, basically, first off, people draw the UK huge, much bigger than it actually is. Oh, no. Then it's about what they don't put on to, so Africa never features. Interestingly, Ireland rarely features, so, you know, so much for the backstop and all of that. Well, they don't physically draw it on a map. Yeah, we say draw a map of the world, and and that's what... They, so they draw a big lump in the middle... Yeah. Right in the middle, and that's Britain. <laughs> and then there's a big lump next to it on one side, and it's the US, and a big lump on the other side, and it's uh, and it's Russia. And then, if you're lucky, you might get, like, France and Germany. I mean, Italy's easy because it looks like a boot. I know. But, oh, my, this is... And the that, scale I mean, that is thing is so... really... Have a look at them on the website because it's, it, it's very interesting, and it tells you so much about where people are coming from when you think about foreign policy. Wow. I mean, that, that idea that they're laughing at us, and I don't mean it in the sense of because of Brexit we've made fool out of ourselves, but I always heard it from more nationalist people. There was a bloke who used to drink in my local pub who'd always say, you know, they're all laughing at us, mate. They're all telling jokes about us. And I used to say to him, Rog, I don't think they are. I really don't think people in Nigeria are sat around making jokes about the English. 
I just don't. And this sort of perception. And I wonder if that is just something that's resonated with me because I've heard it in you know places before. I must well, just say, actually, I was presenting the Mood of the Nation work <laughs> in Brussels, right, to a, a Brussels audience on Monday. And when I got to the slide where they say, uh, we're a laughing stock in Europe, the laughing is in France and Germany, I looked up at the audience and they were all sort of sitting there, sort of quietly oh, shaking no. with laughter. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to get to is, is there a part in, not so much the leave mentality, although it would be more there, but in the kind of more nationalist element of the British psychology that thinks the rest of the world is kind of, and historically has thought that, that somehow we're a laughingstock? Or is that does that not I, come I through? I think that they think that we're not, uh, the rest of the world doesn't pay us the dues that we deserve. I think mm. they think that in different ways. And that's partly where you get this thing about feeling that, uh, Britain is a country in you know in decline, and you know pe- people sort of harking back to the kind of good old days when Britain was great and so on, and, and you know that and that will you know if I was to sort of stereotype the kind of person that would hold that view, they will tend to be older, um, probably a, you know a Leave voter, possibly a Conservative, um, certainly small C Conservative in many of their views anyway. And when you ask them, or do you ask them about what it was in the olden days? that they think we've lost, you know, they think we're in decline, what was it that made us great? What sort of things do they say? So people talk about um, the empire. People and how talk common about is that? us being uh, sort of thought leaders in the world. I mean, that's, I mean, that's my expression rather yeah. than one they would use, yeah. but I think that they do think that. Um, do you think people appreciate what the empire was, or do they just think, oh, we used to rule the world? And... Yes, they think that. Yeah, they don't, rural it, Britannia. It, yeah. It's not necessarily yeah. that we were literally enslaving yeah. people, and that yeah. that's what yeah. they like. Yeah. It's just the sense that we were in charge. Yeah. And and that's where you know the antagonism towards the EU is not new news. I mean that mm. has been there forever. I mean the first work that I did looking at attitudes towards Europe was back in the eighties, and it was disastrous. You know people and and the thing that was interesting was that back then. And same now, people really struggled to list the benefits that they got out of being part of Europe. But they could list all the downsides, all the silly stuff, the sort of straight bananas and the rules and regulations (laughs) and so on. And they knew all of that. And, you know, that writing has been on the wall for a long time. I suppose what's changed now in terms of for Remainers who want a bit of hope, um, there is a more of an organised pro-European argument and movement now, probably for the first time, certainly in my life. So that might change things if there were to be another referendum on the deal or whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, the really interesting thing, what we've done with the Brexit diaries is to sort of track views in the two and a half years since Article 50 was triggered. And really the most striking thing is how little they've changed. I mean, very broadly, this is this mm. is broad, there's a little bit of movement, but it's a third, a third, a third. So you have a third of people are the group that we call the diehards, who are, you know, very gung-ho about leaving yeah. and can't see anything wrong with it. About a third are the people that we call the devastated pessimists. The little icon we use is, is a person with a head on their desk. Um, and, you know, they are utterly distraught, can't see any benefits to leaving. And then there are two, if you like, swing voter groups in the middle, and they're about another third. So we're very polarised in those views. There's a great stat uh, in this latest Mood of the Nation that society is split between haves and have-nots, yes. and it splits 52-48. Mm. And I just wonder within that, so people can self-identify as a have or a have-not. Yeah, yeah. What 
I mean, do you think when you see this, are there people that identify as have-nots that you would think actually you probably are a have, and, and likewise the other way around? And what is the mindset of people that identify? As yeah, one it's and not it's, the other? it's a really good point. I think. I mean, my the surprise for me was how many people... I think it's quite a strong piece of wording to call yourself a have-not. Yes. Um, and yet, you know, that, that, that many people do. 48%. Um, and, and the reason why we asked that question in the poll was because that was a term that people kept using, the haves and the have-nots, yeah. in the focus groups. So we thought it would just be very interesting to get mm. a number on it. And it was quite striking. And then again, there's a sort of inequality. There are certain groups of people who are much more likely to define as have-nots and who feel on the edge much more than others. And, and who are they? So they are uh, the working-class people. Um, they're people living in, in the North and the Midlands rather than the South. Yeah. Um, they're people living in... Um, uh, not living in urban... In, in You know, kind of urban conurbations. Uh, they are younger Again, so you know, there's a, there's a, a whole mix of attributes that mean that you're more likely to self-define. And do, and do people broadly self-define themselves correctly? Do you think? I, I think it's very difficult because, in a way, does it matter? I mean, I, what I always say to clients who say, "Well, hang on, they're wrong, though, aren't they?" Well, no, that's what they think, and perception is their reality. So mm-hmm. let's work with that because that's what they think, and they think it very clearly. Um, so. I don't know. And it's obviously 52.48 is a delicious uh, um, irony that it cuts it like that. It works beautifully, doesn't it? And do, yeah. you know, are the majority of the haves leavers and the majority of the have-nots remainers? Or how did that sort of cut down? They, uh, so from memory, I think, I think it's actually the other way round. I think that leavers were slightly more likely to be have-nots okay. than remainers who were slightly more likely to be haves um yeah and i suppose that that uh, you know resonates in terms of people feeling disaffected yeah. and, and wanting change yeah um <coughs> the elderly are more likely to think that britain is in decline um i suppose that's not too surprising yeah and that but that's the one thing you know across the piece they're more optimistic than their younger counterparts that's the one thing that they're more gloomy about is kind of looking back at this you know glorious nation that we used to be and thinking oh i wish it was like that again and when when people say that sort of stuff, and obviously we know you know it's the empire and things like that, do you ever kind of try and challenge them and say, but actually, you know, certain things have got better? Do you ever try and sort of provoke them in that way? Yeah, so so one of the things that we do, and there are lots of different techniques that we use, focus groups, polls, so, is a deliberative methodology where... so. An ordinary opinion poll tells you what people think given how little they know. But if you do something like a citizen's jury, you can introduce evidence to people and you can see from that what are the things that might encourage them to change their view or look at something again. Or, you know, if you understand this trade-off or that trade-off, do you still think that policy is a good idea? And, you know, I'm a big fan of this as a way of doing all sorts of kind of decision-making, particularly policy-making. And I think there are things that you can do uh, that are very, very effective uh, in, in terms of, you know, really take people with you um, in your thinking and help them to kind of, you know, become policymakers themselves, I suppose. Because you would say to people, well, what about life expectancy or, you know, I suppose in the last 10 years wages have stagnated, yep. but broadly, compared to the 1950s, people live longer, they're healthier, they're, you know, uh, paid more and things like that. When, I suppose challenged is the wrong word, but when presented with those sorts of arguments, do people change their mind or, or do they dig in? Yeah, I think it's very hard to fight 
with stats. So I remember doing a piece of work looking at attitudes towards immigration mm. and giving people a lot of stats. Uh, and typically, if you h- hear somebody sort of arguing about immigration, they will they will band it. You know, they'll they'll throw stats around. What we found was that people come in with a particular view, and it's a very emotional view. Mm. It's not rational at all. And on both sides, on both sides of the argument, and you know, the more that you try to counter their emotional belief with your statistic the more they challenge the statistic. And they'll say, you know, well, they would say that, or where did that come from? Well, they would say, you know, the government would say that, wouldn't they? That's what, you know, what, all the time. Um, and they will challenge your fact with their belief. And the belief will always win. So the way to win... So, for instance, if you wanted to um, convince the British public that immigration was a good thing, yeah. and obviously you have to facts that underpin it, but actually it would be to, to talk to people in an with an emotional argument rather than a, a stat-based one. Yeah, I think so. And also, I mean, the, the thing we always say when we're doing kind of communications testing work for clients, be they political or, or, or anybody else, is start your argument with where your audience is, not where you wish they were. Yes. Because if you start your argument with where you're hoping they're going to get to, they're just not even going to listen. They're just switching right off. But if you start with something they can nod to, then you've got them listening and there's just a chance that they might actually listen to the rest of your argument. There's a there's a one of the slides in the in the mood of the nation thing says there's a sense that the British public is resilient and able to just get on with things despite yes. the national gloom and negativity. Is that about just in their own lives or do you think because the way that Brexit is discussed, and maybe this is a part of our na- na- national characteristic anyway, that people just think, well, if we all just have to pull together and work harder, we'll have to do it. Do people think in a way they can kind of affect Brexit in some way? I think they certainly think they can make the best of a bad job, whatever it is, whether yeah. it's Brexit or anything else, that way. And that was quite striking. I mean, again, we asked that question in the poll because it kept coming through the focus groups. And it wasn't just the kind of, you know, the, the leavers and the people who were more positive disposed, disposed towards Brexit who felt that. It was everybody. And I think you can see, I think it was 68% from memory, um, uh, agreed with that. And yeah, 69%. That 69%. So close. Are. So close. It's within a margin of error. It's fine. Um, so, you know, people people felt that quite strongly. And, and yeah, uh, we just get on with it. That's what we do. We're Brits. And how much, if at all, did did difference in what sort of Brexit people would like come out? You know, are, are people who voted Leave split on a no-deal Brexit? Or do most of them say, well, if that's the way we leave, we leave? Or do some of them say, uh, actually, I didn't think it was going to be a no-deal. This is, this this is, is where it gets on. very tricky because people, basically people tell us that the more they hear about Brexit on the news and so forth, the less they understand and the more confused they get. And they feel that there is this kind of cacophony, there's the vocabulary, the words that they, you know, you could put a gun to their head and say, explain to me what a customs union is or I'm going to shoot you. And you you just have to shoot them because they wouldn't know. (laughs) They just just have to shoot them. That is the the (laughs) conclusion of this report. We all need shooting. They just wouldn't know. And and, and then the less they know, the more they switch off because, you know, news coverage tends to go straight to those points and we'll, you know, we'll reference them and we'll assume that people know what they're talking about. And it becomes really problematic. Um, So people just don't have a very sophisticated or or nuanced view. Um, As towards, you know, do people... I mean, qualitatively and in the polling, actually, what we find is that 
just as you'd expect, you've got people quite polarised, a third, a third, a third. People are drawn to extremes. So you've got about a third of people who frankly think that we shouldn't be leaving at all and about a third who think we should just get on with it and go whatever. And if that's no deal, so be it. And then it's the third in the middle then. And, and that's where, you know, that's where yeah. the politicians listening and, and those yeah, that can affect the, things uh, and people swing, like yourself. The swing voters. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what is it do you think that would win? You know, I know I have a lot of leavers listening to this, so forgive me for, for indulging my own politics for a second. But from a Remain point of view, if there was to be a, a referendum to break this deadlock, what are the messages and, and what are the sort of vehicles of those messages that would convince the people in that middle third to, to basically stop Brexit and, and vote to Remain? So, I, I mean, I think... I realise that's a big question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that where the Remain camp went wrong last time was relying too much on you know elites experts powers that be whatever whatever that is I mean I remember talking to somebody senior in that campaign and saying I don't feel it's going very well our focus groups are not good and I'll come and share them with you and he said to me wait till next week it's all going to be okay after next week so I watched with great anticipation and when I saw what happened next week, I knew what I knew. This was the event that he had w- was yeah. referring to, and he thought was going to be the massive game changer. It was Barack Obama. Oh dear, back of the queue. And I remember doing focus groups that week, and people saying, "He comes over here. He tells us what to do." It was just a disaster. Yeah. Um, it annoyed me. Yeah. And I voted Remain. Yeah. I thought it was awful. Yeah. It was such a bad idea. Such a bad idea. And I think all the way through there was this, you know, there was this assumption. um, It was a bit about project fear and maybe there was nowhere else to go. And I know a lot of people feel that actually in the end, having people fear the consequences of leaving was probably the best thing that you could do in communications terms. And I think that may well be true. Um, But, yeah, it was handled badly. And also, I suppose, what what I... in a way, not that it's my role to defend them or otherwise, but I suppose what they might say in their own defence is a lot of those warnings <laughs> turn it out to be true and you can't not warn people. You know, if, yeah. if, if the, particularly as it was government policy effectively to stay in the EU, you can't have a prime minister who doesn't let the public know what the risks are. I suppose yeah. it's about how you balance that as a part of a wider yeah. campaign. Exactly. Um, exactly. So next time it has to be less top-down, I suppose. It has to be a bit more... Hmm. And I think it has to show renegade. much more clearly what, what this means. But, it, you know, next time, will there be a next time? I don't know. But would, do you think, I mean, maybe, OK, I'll put some scenarios to you and just see whether you think they're good or bad ideas. In a referendum campaign, if there is another one, would it be a good idea to make a kind of explicitly pro-European case, to kind of pitch Britain as a European nation and appeal to people to feel European? Or would that be a very bad idea? Do you know what? I think I think back a lot to this very first piece of work that I did looking at attitudes towards Europe back in the 80s. Now, I think if somebody had set out then and started building the case for yeah. being this proud European nation and talking about the benefits, we might be in a very different place now. But, you know, people take a long time. Attitudes are long held. Um, it's not going to change in the space of a short, you know, campaign. No. So not so, so that's don't not pitch working. It, don't pitch it as too pro-European. What about pitching it as in a kind of patriotic British wrapping themselves in the Union Jack? Would that be a, a I, I think way? that would be a better way of doing it and then showing how our relationship with Europe is, you know, enhances that. That might be a better way of doing it. In terms of the elites and the establishment perception, 
how much, if there is another referendum, will that have flipped if you have, uh, you know, Prime Minister Johnson um, delivering a leave that he campaigned for? Will, is there a perception thing that actually some people might say, well, actually, they're the elite now. They're in charge. They're delivering it. And actually, the people who are pro-European or, or, or are Remainers, we're the, we're the outsiders. We're, we're, we're not the establishment anymore. Mm. Is there any chance of that kind of cutting through? I, I really don't know. I think, I think it's going to be... I mean, let's assume it is Boris. We'll know soon enough. Yeah. Um, I, I think it really is going to be fascinating to see what he does um, because I think he does have an opportunity, obviously. And for all I've just said about how gloomy people are and how fed up they are with all politicians and so on, you know, every time people vote, it is this triumph of hope over experience. Um, and you vote with hope in your heart and you want it to yeah. be different. And he has that opportunity to say, here I am, I'm a different leader and I'm offering you something very different. So that, you know, maybe that can work for him. But what I would also observe is that, you know, somebody who's sort of looked at views of Boris for a long time, you know, going back to before he was mayor of London. Yeah. Back in the day, in his heyday, he was a sort of Heineken politician who could reach out to the bits that others could get. He sort of almost transcended politics. Mm. I remember doing an exercise where I was looking at a particular... A policy message and saying who should be the messenger for this and they said not a politician I then got people to make up little ads themselves saying what should the line be who should be and they'd all put pictures of Boris on their ad as the person that should be the messenger and I said but I thought you said it shouldn't be a politician they're like oh no Boris is different oh, now wow. they don't feel that now and is that because he's that alienated 48% yeah, of and the he's become a very very divisive figure yeah but I suppose in a way does he possess any potential to, to regain that, or is that gone? I think he does, as I say. I, th I think that there will be an opportunity for a fresh start. And sort of, when, you know, when I was working with Gordon and we were looking to him transitioning from being Chancellor to being PM, uh, we did a lot of analysis of how voting changed with a new Prime Minister, particularly a transitional Prime Minister, i.e. Yeah. one that hadn't been voted in. Um, and it was always the case that three months in was as good as it got. Yeah. So these first so three this months, opportunity. Yes, and if you don't take that opportunity, you've had it, because then people see you. But in that first three months, you know, they 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 imbue you with all the things they 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 want potentially. Wow. So the f I mean, you may well then be. We may get an early election then if he's you know if he's. Oh, I, I mean, I've, I'm very sure that we'll have an early election this um, year. I think it quite likely because I mean, apart from anything else, he's definitely going to want to fight Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, I mean the only thing I would say is that Tory MPs are desperate not to have one, but I think that's because of where they are in the polling now. Yeah. If they get a surge, it and will become irresistible. If he I is able to pull off Brexit in some way, mm. then you have to assume at that point the Brexit Party, uh, you know, is 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 no longer the force that it is right now because that's all it is there to talk about. Uh, Maybe yes. he sends Farage off to become ambassador to the US. <laughs> but he Gets may him well. Out of the way. But you're right. If he, if they, the problem the Tories have had is that the Brexiteers have not thought Theresa May to be a Brexiteer, and to some, you know, she voted Remain. So yeah. I can see. And that in that point. sense, maybe he's got more leeway actually yes. as somebody who is clearly a lever. And what he can do is suck up the Brexit Party. So he can stop the hemorrhage to the Brexit Party. Maybe get those people back. But can he reach out to? Centre, you know, Middle England, not Middle England, the centre ground of the UK. Well, that depends on what he does. <laughs> and just in terms of, you know, the, the not just the Blairite view, but I suppose the kind of the Labour view has always been, uh, particularly the Brownite Blairite 
group and and Kinnock as well that when you have a you know a traditional right wing party against a traditional left wing party, a traditional right wing party wins. Is that the case now? Do you think Boris against Corbyn, as awful a choice as so many people will find it, necessarily delivers a Johnson victory or not? I don't think it's absolutely clear cut, but if I was putting money on it now, I think that's where I'd put it. Yes, I mean, you know, if you look at the, yeah, I mean, the you know, the Labour Party really should be polling in a much much stronger way than it is, and even then, it wouldn't mean that it would necessarily win. Just in terms of your own uh, career, obviously this f- amazing career, published author, uh, talking to a brick. Well, people, I will put the link so that people can buy it Excellent. in the in the notes. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure many people will, uh, you know, advise prime ministers and uh, and done polling at the highest level. Was there any ever part of you that thought Actually, I'd like to go into politics myself? No, never. Not at any. Not, not even in 1997. Ever, not ever. Why no. not? Because I I I think I sort of. I, I saw my role as being this link between people, voters, ordinary people, and politicians. And that's what I enjoyed doing. But that would be dynamite. I mean, you understand the public more than any other politician, probably. That was, you've got power in your hands. I have, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And people can get access to that power for the right fee. I just was never drawn to it at all. And was that just because of uh, you know personal sacrifice you'd have to make, or just the, the just the way politics is is unattractive? I think it was a bit of both, but I I think I just felt that there was a real kind of mission doing what I'm what I'm doing. So in terms of the future now for you and Britain thinks, yeah, I mean you've got such an imp- the client list on you, you know McDonald's, Oxfam, the Nationals, or basically everyone at some point has used you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's not going to change. Are there any things that you would like to do differently in the future? There's certain things we think, actually, in five years, I'd like to be, I'd like Britain thinks to be in a particular position. Or? Well, I think, so one of the things that I think is really fascinating is is not just a British perspective, but a sort of more of a global perspective. Yeah. And in particular, I'm very interested in what's happening here compared to what's happening in Europe, what's happening in the US. I want to do, for instance, this mood of the nation type project in other countries and, 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 and sort of be able to contrast it. In particular, I'm interested to understand, you know, Trump's America compared with Brexit Britain. And I think that's something. So, you know, we called the business Britain Thinks, although uh, something like a third of the work that we do is international. We use the brand World Thinks, which sounds very um, global. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely a sort of ambition is to is to be doing more international work. You know, the work so you could do with the Democrats, for instance, yeah. would be, you know, change the course of history if you would help them defeat Donald Trump. I mean, there's a part of you that thinks actually we sort of we could get yeah, out to America think, before the 2020 election and yeah, I think I mean I th- I, th- I think that I mean I don't know about actually doing work with politicians there, but certainly I'm very interested to understand the American mindset. Oh man, well what an exciting prospect for the next few years, Deborah. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here today and, and picking your amazing brain about not just political and polling history, but where we are as a nation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Pleasure, I really enjoyed it. Cheers. Well, there we go. Deborah Mattinson from Britain Thinks. And in the notes, you can see how you can follow her on Twitter and follow Britain Thinks on Twitter and buy her book and just follow their work because it is amazing, fascinating stuff. And particularly when... 
at the moment, you're just trying to second guess what everyone thinks and why and what are the not just on whether we should leave or remain or deal or no deal, but just the undercurrents to British public opinion and how far some of these things go back. And all of that is available for free on their website. And it is um, it's just so pleased that Deborah is doing this work to enlighten us all about where the public are. I've always been fascinated by polling and about why people have opinions and how do you change them? Can you change them? What changes them? And things like that, as I'm sure many of you will, will also identify with that as a, as a as an area that you, perhaps you wish you'd worked in. And I always think I'd have loved to have worked for Ipsos Mori or, or for Britain Thinks or something like that. So it's just great to, to pick the brains of an expert uh, and that is one of the great thrills of doing this podcast. So thanks to Deborah, thanks to you for listening to it. Um, I'm, as I said at the start, uh, currently um, writing a new show for Edinburgh, which you'll be able to buy tickets to. Brexit pursued by a bear. Uh, the tickets are available through edfringe.com. Uh, and as always, oh, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so many great guest suggestions that have come out of that. Um, so hopefully those of you that emailed in will see the guests that you requested in the coming weeks and months. And uh, if you can, please leave a review on iTunes or whatever your podcast provider is. It really does help. Um, it seems like such a small thing, but it, it really does help other people find it. And if you could just spread the word about it, I'd be very grateful. But for now, I'll see you soon. Thanks to Deborah. Thanks to you. Ta-ra. Oh, this episode was produced by Daisy Knight. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.